So in this series, oh, can you hear me? Got now. <laughs> so in this series, we're talking about discipleship. And as I was preparing for the sermon, I realized that this is a really big one when it comes to discipleship. You see, in the Christian church today, we have forgotten about what it means to be disciples. And I think the reason why is because we're too comfortable. Are you comfortable here today in church? It's cold. Yes. And, and I, thank you. Thank you, Doug, for bringing that up. Because I've got to be honest with you, I, I, I sit on a number of committees across the life of our church. And, um, and I keep hearing about how this church, a particular church, sorry, I'm not saying this church, but a particular church has applied for um, uh, to have air conditioning put in. Uh, because it's too hot in the, in the summer and people don't come to church. Uh, or they've applied for, for funding to buy new seats because the pews are too uncomfortable. Uh, or they've applied uh, for funding for a, a patio. This is my favorite one. I won't, I won't name which church. This is actually a real case. So they applied for a patio because what they want to do is they want to have a place where to park the minister's car. I love it. I love it. See, the minister is in the office and the car gets really hot. And so by having a patio for the minister's car, and they want to use it for other things as well, you know, community barbecues and things like that. But the main reason is somewhere to park the minister car. And that's okay. That's, that's up to them. But it speaks to me about comfort in the life of the church today. And about how we have prioritized some of these things in a place where, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming or overshadowing of the main thing we're meant to be doing, which is preaching the gospel, which is sharing the gospel. And this is something that I want to bring up for us here today. So I don't want to be critical of those things. I know that in churches where it gets really, really hard, and I've been in these situations, people have had heat stroke, people have fainted. You know, and things like that. So in those situations, I would say to you, yes, you need some form of climate control. You need to do something to manage the space. But maybe, maybe buying a whole set of air conditioners may not necessarily be the answer. You know, John Wesley, when he began his preaching ministry, he did it under the tree outside where it is cooler. <laughs> you see, sometimes our comfort is more about being here and being the people of God while we are here. But then once we go outside or once we go beyond this place, we're no longer comfortable or able to be in that space. And that's what this particular passage speaks to me for our 21st century context. So get comfortable. Because I promise you by the end of this message, you won't be. And my hope is that you go from here. Taking that slight discomfort in your soul and in your heart so that you can go into the world and share the love of what God has in store for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and this word and ask that you speak to us and bless us in your son's name. Amen. So Jesus teaches about this churlish servant. And uh, what we need to understand is that this passage comes in the context of a greater discussion. You see, at the beginning of Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We've got to start there. We've got to start there. Because if we don't start with that understanding that the, the parable of the churlish servant actually has to do with the disciples saying, which one of us is greater, then we are missing the point. The disciples were followers of Jesus. Some of them, like John and James, had been following John the Baptist beforehand. They had known about this good teaching. They had been living with it. And yet they still came to Jesus and said, which one of us will be the greatest? I love it. In, in Greek, he says, which one of us will be Omega, the mega one? Doesn't that just kind of really make you think, wow, you don't want to be just great. You want to be mega. You want to be awesome. I think Jesus' answer, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I think Jesus' answer could have been me. <laughs> he should have said him. He should have said Jesus is going to be the greatest. Forget you lot. But is that what he says? No. He brings forth a child. And he places this child in and amongst them. Now this says a couple of things to me, and I've shared with you before. That in the temple and in the religious life of Israel at this time, children were not included. They had their little room. They had their little space where they would go and where they would be. And yet here, with Jesus among his disciples, we know that there were women. We know that there were children. This is a picture of what the church is meant to be today. And I want to tell you, I travel a lot in circles to do with children's ministries and intergenerational ministry. And one of the biggest criticisms that they say to us is they say one of the problems with the churches is that we keep forgetting to include children. We keep forgetting to putting them in the midst of us. Now, this is not something that we want to do that I want to do as a recruitment thing for the future. No, this is because having children around reminds us, reminds us of the heart and the spirit with which we are meant to approach the gospel. With which we are meant to come to understand all of these things that Jesus is teaching us. We've had hundreds of years where the church has said to the children, This message is not for you. This time is not for you. Why? Because they'll be uncomfortable. Because they'll be ratty. Because they'll make noise. Well, I say, come on. Bring the noise. Bring the children. Bring the discomfort. Because friends, that's what we need. We need to remember that. We need to see that. Because that's what's going to help us understand how we are before the eyes of God. I don't know about you, but I would confess to having been a ratty son of God. I would confess to having found myself in discomfort, sitting, waiting for what God is doing. And I look at my children sitting in the service, fiddling, playing, half listening. But when I say to them in the car on the drive home, did you learn anything from the sermon today? They always have something to tell me. Not because they're great listeners. Definitely not because I'm their dad and I'm the minister. 
I believe it's because God can speak to them even in their discomfort. And that's something that's so important for us to learn and understand. So who is the greatest? The one who humbles himself like this child is the greatest. And I love the language here. And I think Matthew is being very intentional here. He uses the word tapinos, tapinos, to humble itself. But this word actually comes from the word piedon, piedon, which means child. So he's actually saying, be lonely, be like a child. He who is like a child can come into the kingdom of heaven. And it's not a child as in an immature one. It's not, isn't it funny the way how we use these terms for youth? You know, sometimes the, the term may have a, a, an implication of immaturity. Or the term may have an implication of innocence. Here, the term has an implication of size. The little one. Why? Because they came to Jesus and they said, which of us is going to be mega? And he goes, the one who is ready to make himself little one, like this little one. Little one, like this little one. If we are to understand the parable of the churlish servant, we must understand this. Whoever takes this lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is why he goes on to teach. Firstly, he talks about resolving conflict in the church. And he talks about how if you have a conflict with someone, you must go before them and you must apologize. You must find out what you did wrong. That's the first step. It assumes fault on the side of the one that is willing to lower themselves. And then if that does not resolve, that's when you bring in another brother. So he teaches them this. And that passage actually finishes with that wonderful word where he says, where two or more are gathered there, there I am also. Because Jesus is in the reconciliation. Jesus is in the coming together, in love, in community, in communion. And we forget this. We want to hold on to our hurt. We want to hold on to that which has made us uncomfortable and say, you know what, this has made me uncomfortable and I'm not going to be comfortable again until I resolve this. And it becomes all about us and me and my fragile ego. But no, Jesus tells them you need to be lowly and come lowly as a child. Peter comes along and says to him, so how many times shall I forgive? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. If that's the biggest number you can think of, Pete. Firstly, you know, you've got to count more than 10. You've got, you got at least 10 fingers, 10 toes. Come on, mate. You can, you can count. I, I forgive him this time. And then I forgive him this time. You can go at least to 20. Especially because they all often wore open-toed shoes, didn't they, back then? So, you know. <laughs> But no, if that's the biggest number you can think of, Peter, and there are cultural reasons for the number seven, it's got to do with perfection. If you can think of more than seven, Jesus says, no, it's not just seven. It is 70 times seven. It is a perfection beyond your comprehension. Why? You see, Peter wanted to and believed that he could attain a level of mega righteousness where he could judge. 
where he could chastise, where he could stand and lord it over other people. Because this is what they saw religious people doing in their day. This is what the priests did. This is what happened in the temple. This is what happened with the rabbis. They treated everyone else as if they were dumb or inferior and they lorded it over everyone else because of their blood, because of their family lineage and because of their position. And Peter thought, great, I'm going to go from being just a merchant fisherman to being like those blokes. And Jesus, when can I do that? Come on. But you see, following Jesus goes against the grain of elitism, against the grain of prestige, against the grain of all of these things that they had built up in their minds meant being a good person. So he tells them about this parable. He talks about a servant. Now the word servant, doulos here, maybe it's not quite right. Some of our Bibles actually say slave. Slave. Doulos can be a slave, but not in the sense of a chattel slave, as maybe we might think of traditionally, but as a person who actually will sell their time. Will sell their time. In the same way how people in businesses sell their time now and get paid by the hour. That was part of what was going on. And, and no, they did not have freedoms. That's true. But then again, you could be arguing that people who are sitting in an office for eight hours a day shackled to a desk may also not have certain freedoms. Looking at Rolani here. (laughs) She knows what I'm talking about. So anyway, so this is the kind of servant that this man was. Another translation that I saw said official. That's interesting. I wonder why. I think if if you've read ahead, which I'm sure most of you have, um, you'll, you'll understand why. They say official. So this fellow owed the king 450,000 pounds of silver. 204,000 kilograms. Coming to a modern value of 151 million US dollars. Did you, did you ever think when you heard this parable as a kid and you had the flannel graph? Did you ever think it was this much money? I didn't. <laughs> I certainly did not think, oh my goodness, this is a ridiculous amount. There wouldn't have been a big enough frown graph. You know what I mean? 10,000 bags of silver that would fill this place. That's a heck of a lot of money. And this is why some of our translations say that he was an official because it's to help us understand that he had access to this money and he lost it. So what happens is that the, uh, the Lord in that situation decides that the servant, his wife and his children are to be sold into slavery to offset the debt. One talent would normally have bought a household of slaves. 35 legionaries were paid with one talent to be in Nero's household. This is a similar time. So we can, we can say that's a similar exchange rate. A legionary, a soldier, a man of battle, ready to put his life on the line. 35 of them. And that was one talent. This man owed 10,000. Jesus, what are you saying? Friends, that is the debt of sin that we are. 
And like the flannel graph that was not big enough to hold the 10,000 bags, there's no flannel graph in the world that can hold all the sin that has occurred in my life, in our lives. The conscious and the unconscious, the said and the unsaid. This is the picture that Jesus is actually painting. Because his disciples were asking him permission to engage in sinful behavior. And for Jesus, standing in judgment of another child of God was one of the worst and gravest sins that you could have. And here, his disciples, the twelve whom he had hand-picked, were there and they were asking him this question. Imagine... I'm a teacher. If one of my students came and asked me a question that went so against the grain of my teacher, I would be crushed. I would say, Lord, what's wrong with me that I've not taught them to understand this? But friends, this is the nature of sin. It entices and it puts us in a situation where we want to do it and we want to find excuses to do it. It is human nature to sin. And therefore, it is human nature to hate It is human nature to judge. It is human nature to hold it and lord it over others. And this is what the disciples were asking. So Jesus paints a picture of a servant who goes to his Lord. In this case, Christ Jesus. And he says to him, my sin is great, but I will work my life to pay that off. Five hundred years ago, there was a huge debate in the church because people in the church realized that Jesus was not asking for people to commit their lives and to work hard every single day to try and earn salvation to try to earn forgiveness for sins that there was no way that we could do that that we could achieve that it was not humanly possible and in the same way when I did the math and I did it Kimmy will tell you, I, I did it, what, six, seven times? I did the math and I was like, there is no way that a person even today could easily, could pay back $151 million. That, that figure is beyond our comprehension. And yet that is the reality because our sin has got a greater price than this. We could not put a dollar figure on it. So the servant gets down on his knees and he says, have pity on me and I will pay you every cent I own as if he could work that off. And the king had mercy on him and let him go free and even told him that he did not have to pay back the money. The word he uses here where he says, have pity on me is makrothrumos. That actually means may your wrath extend a little bit more so that it does not incur unto me. Have you, you've, you've sung these old hymns that say, and the wrath of God was satisfied? That's what this is saying. This man is begging and saying, the wrath, may your anger, God, hold, hold fast for just that little bit longer. Because this is all we can do. In human strength, this is all we can do. We can just beg God to hold his hand of judgment because justice is his. Judgment is his and he should be able to exercise that. But in this, he calls upon the king's mercy. 
And I want to tell you, in as much as this man's debt was 151 million US dollars, God's mercy is worth more than that. Are you with me, church? It is not that this man came along and said, I can work so hard, Lord, that you will be able to receive that which I owe you. No, he appealed to his mercy and God's own mercy is worth so much greater valor that it wiped out the debt. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what Jesus was demonstrating. You see, we are not worthy of this forgiveness. But his mercy and his love for us is such that it wipes out every sin so that we no longer have to pay that debt. That was already paid for us on the cross. Now this is where the discipleship kicks in. Because we can talk about Jesus' goodness, Jesus' grace, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And in our hearts, we feel good and we feel great. But then we walk out into these streets. And you know what? Guess what happens? We're no longer comfortable. We were comfortable in church. We were comfortable with the idea of that reconciliation and that love. But when we go out there, we see a world where hate, judgment, and fear rule where they reign. Jesus himself said that the devil is the father of this world. And he is the father of lies. And so we see that world and we forget Of that feeling that we have all in here. So this is why I want us to make us a little bit uncomfortable. Because I want us to know that that's the feeling we get when we go out there. And we can do something about it. So the servant goes out. And he sees one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred silver coins. About four months wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. After some discussion, the master called the servant back in and he said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. And as we heard in the reading, the consequences were very dire. Friends, our comfort in here shouldn't come because of lovely padded seats, climate control, nice music, and that feeling of being in a friendly community. Our comfort here should come firstly and foremostly from the presence of God bringing us together and reconciling us to himself and to each other. When you walk out of here and you're uncomfortable, I want you to ask yourself, where is God? Because your job as the servant in that situation is to take that reconciliation with you out beyond this place into the community, into your family, into your neighborhood and that that goes out beyond this space. Because what we see out there is only a small fraction to that which we owe. And if we want to come before this throne of grace in all honesty, We don't come mega, do we? We need to come low, small, humble, like a child. Thank you, Kimmy. My mother was a prison chaplain for about 20 years in this country. She served in Pentridge, down in Melbourne, Wacol here, 
uh, Helena Jones, a women's correctional facility. One where, um, in particular, they have a lot of pregnant women and very young children. Children who are born into a very literal captivity. Can you imagine that? Heartbreaking, isn't it? She had a bank of images like this one here. It's a man looking out a window. He's sitting in darkness, but he can see beyond his window only barbed wire and bars. This is the reality of so many of us. If hate, judgment and fear rule in our lives. This world is God's creation. And God desires that it be good. But that can only happen and it can only begin with that reconciliation here in our hearts. In Romans 6, this translation comes from the Amplified Bible. uh, uh, The Apostle Paul says, But now since you have been set free from sin and have become willing slaves to God, you have your benefit resulting in sanctification being made holy and set apart for God's purpose. And the outcome of this is eternal life. For the wages or the debt of sin is death. But the free gift of God, that is His remarkable, overwhelming gift of grace to believers, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the eyes of God, we're not mega, but we are loved, but we are precious. So much so that he was willing to pour out his mercy for us, that invaluable mercy, not worthless, of great worth, but yet whose worth and whose value at the end of the day was one that God was able to pass along and say, you know what, my child is worthy of this. The challenge of this parable is that we then walk out into a world of discomfort and are able to bring that love. So friends, are you a little bit more uncomfortable now than you were when you first sat down? I hope so. And I hope that you take that out there and that we find and carry Christ with us wherever we go. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your love, the hope and joy that we have in you. I thank you that you convict our hearts to be your children, to love in your name. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, continue to move powerfully among us. May this word impact us with the knowledge and understanding that our debt is great, but it has been already paid by Christ on the cross. And now we want to take this reconciliation and share it with the world out there so that they know that this is available to all those who would repent and seek your face. So bless us with an understanding of this, I pray in Jesus' name. And the people of God say, Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able. We're now going to celebrate Jesus Christ, our Lord.